This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. A lot of that resulted from the unintended serendipitous conversations that inevitably would go on every day on the river between boatmen and scientists. And we came so far. And I think that in some ways this river trip that we've been on this year and that occurs each year here at, in Cataract Canyon reminds me of that earlier time. It's a trip led by lifelong boatmen committed to this place who know this place and it's scientists kind of scratching their head moving in the slow ponderous way that scientists work and there are inevitable conversations around the campfire at night to talk about things and talk about operations. It's a more complicated issue here because there isn't a big dam immediately upstream that you just say that's the culprit and we need to change that. It's an extremely complicated issue of how to operate Lake Powell. There are gazillions of other interests that have to be considered. These things start by people being on the river and they start with conversations among boatmen, people who care, and river scientists who study these things. And um, it actually gives me a really good feeling because it brings back such strong memories from long ago. This episode comes to you again from the Colorado River at Cataract Canyon in Utah. In October of this year, 2021, a group of scientists and river runners and river conservation folks traveled together down the 94 miles of the Colorado River from the Potash boat ramp to the boat ramp at North Wash. This has become an annual trip for many in that group to look at and monitor and perform research on the portion of this river stretch known as the Recovering River Corridor. What does that mean? This is where the Colorado River, the fifth longest river in the United States, meets the second largest reservoir in the United States, Lake Powell. Lake Powell is shrinking and currently sits at about 28% of total capacity. Because Powell is and has been so low for several years, the Colorado is reclaiming its river corridor that has been smothered under the waters of Lake Powell for decades. The Recovering River Corridor starts just below the biggest rapid in Cataract Canyon known by the name of Big Drop 3 this is where the research is really beginning. The Recovering River Corridor goes from that rapid all the way downriver until the river has stopped its flow at the new and much lower edge of Lake Powell. This was the zone where the Colorado River would come flowing with red and green and brown sediment, with flows anywhere from 2,000 CFS to 114,000 CFS. The Colorado is known for its sediment. This is what this river did and has done. It carried sediment from upstream locations to downstream locations, feeding the riparian areas, building and moving beaches, replenishing soils, and eventually bringing sediment to the Colorado River Delta at the Gulf of California. And when the dam was put in place and the water finally got backed up to the upper end of what became Lake Powell, the river would hit this still lake water and all of the suspended sediment would simply drop out, drift to the bottom of this new reservoir and sit there. That happened for a few decades, sediment just stacking up underwater. And now, all of that land that was under the reservoir is no longer underwater. This river is again flowing through this area, and now there are enormous dumps of sediment laying along the river corridor that is snug in between steep red cliff walls that are hundreds of feet high. 
These scientists go there to look at what is happening, how the river is recovering, how much sediment is down there, and the river runners take them there. They take the scientists to the recovering river corridor and show them the best examples of sediment dumps. The river guides are the humans that understand the language of the river and how it moves and changes naturally and how unnatural changes also occur. Pete Lefebvre is a career river guide. He has worked in Cataract Canyon for many years and was one of the guides who began noticing the return of rapids several years ago as the reservoir receded and the river carved away at the sediment. Pete was one of the river guides on this fall science trip. A, a big curiosity I have, would you tell the short story of you, you finished the big drops, kind of the known rapids with the full lake, like in the lake era? And, uh, and then one trip, you're going down and you see a rock sticking out. Can you just talk about that trip and what that expressed to you? Sure. So through the years, the different lake levels fluctuate quite a bit. 2011 was a really high water year, and the lake came up at 50, 60 feet that year and inundated a lot of the lower rapids that had started to come back. So we were dealing with a pretty full reservoir at that point camping on lake sediments and no current through the last 25 miles of the trip. And then 2012 and 2013 were really low water years. So the lake dropped back down quite a bit. And then 14, 15, we started getting some more water and the lake continued to fluctuate, but it was at a lower level. And as the lake would fluctuate on the lower parts of the the season, you know, towards the latter part of the season where it would drop down, sometimes we would see stuff that we had never seen before. You'd have the high water scenario of the spring and summer, it would scour some stuff out, and as the lake and the river levels dropped, sometimes we'd get little surprise rocks poking out in different places that we'd never seen rocks before. It would just be lake sediments, and then all of a sudden there was rocks that had been buried for the last 40 years or so, start coming out of the, the mud. And I remember doing a trip where the reservoir had dropped quite a bit over the last few weeks and the river level was low and we were coming through near the gypsum area. This is a spot where the boats are packaged up, we don't need to wear life jackets anymore, and we're just motoring off. Um, we had current at this point, but absolutely no character to the water, just downstream current, really flat. And I noticed there was the tip of a rock sticking out of the water in the middle of the river. And we'd never seen that before. So we're all like, oh my gosh, look, look, there's a rock. <laughs> and uh, I remember taking a photo of it. And I think that was 2015. And as things continued to carve and reservoir levels stayed low, the next year we saw a little bit more of that rock and that's when I started talking with Mike Dehoff about oh this rock sticking out of the water and we started comparing notes about other things we'd seen and I remember Mike was like well we could call it Pete's Rocks <laughs> and at that point I, I was you know excited about things but I, I didn't want a, a set of rocks or anything named after me because usually when you come across a, a rock in the river that's got a name, it's named after a guide or a person that wrapped a boat there, or flipped a boat there, had some sort of calamity. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't want that to move forward in that way. 
So it ended up getting named LaRue's Riffle after E.C. LaRue, who was the head hydrologist on a survey trip in 1921. And Mike had found an old picture that LaRue took of one of the Cole brothers running through this riffle. Hmm. And that rock that was sticking out of the water was part of that riffle. And we've been matching photos to that old photo. And it's almost all the way back, which is pretty neat. The conversations that Pete and Mike Dehoff initially had continued, and various other longtime Cataract River guides shared their stories and pictures of what they were encountering as the reservoir was dropping and the river was ever so slowly re-emerging. There was no intention to create an official group. It was simply river guides talking about the river. Eventually, the casual collection of pictures and notes became typed up and printed off field guides that were passed around among these and other Cataract River guides. It became known as the Returning Rapids Field Guide. There is a previous episode of this podcast from March of 2021 that gives a lot of backstory on the beginning of the Returning Rapids project. The link to that episode is in the episode notes. On this science trip, on this cat science trip, it feels like you probably have several roles. What is your role on this trip? I think Returning Rapids as a whole and my role too on this trip is to facilitate the hard science that is happening right now in terms of the mapping, getting the elevations, the sediment, and also pointing them, you know, into the best places to study that stuff, whether it be the right campsite to set up at or the right place where there's good domini formation layers to study. And how, how many, for how, how many seasons have you spent boating in Cataract Canyon? My first trip was in 2002. I started working here commercially in 2012 and full-time and that would be like 15 trips a season somewhere around that Mm -hmm. and I still do five or six trips a year. The Dominey Formation. What is the Dominey? Floyd Dominey served as the Commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation for 10 years in the 1960s and his name and work are considered synonymous with the building of Glen Canyon Dam and for better or worse, the extensive infrastructure systems and policy related to the Colorado River. Earlier, I talked about how the suspended sediment from the Colorado River fell or dropped out of the river and drifted down to the bottom of the reservoir when the river current stopped at the edge of Lake Powell. This is the crux of the entire story. This is why this entire science trip is happening, because of the sediment that has filled the old riverbed and the adjacent riparian areas and side canyons. The amount of sediment now exposed because of the lake level dropping is gigantic. It is almost a thing a person has to see to understand. For about 40 miles on both sides of the river, there are sediment deposits. These are embankments that are 10 feet to 70 feet high and frequently go from the canyon wall to the river's edge or near the edge. And there is still sediment below water. The old riverbed from pre-Glen Canyon Dam days is full of sediment sometimes 100 feet deep. Estimations suggest the amount of daily sediment dump is about seven river barge loads full. The Colorado River has been flowing into Lake Powell non-stop since the dam closed its gates in 1966. That is a non-stop flow for 50-plus years. And once Lake Powell was near full and full, that sediment dump was focused at the upper end of the reservoir, which is what we are referring to as the Recovering River Corridor. Dr. Scott Heenick from the United States Geologic Survey introduces himself and explains more about why Floyd Dominey's name has been informally adopted to represent the river sediment. My name is Scott Heenick. I work for the Department of Interior, United States Geological Survey, Utah Water Science Center, and I'm a hydrologist. 
And you have a doctorate in? I do, I, I have a PhD in geology. So the Domini Formation exists in the Colorado San Juan Escalante Arms, Dirty Devil Arm of Lake Powell because of Glen Canyon Dam. And we impounded water and we turned a river into a lake. In early 63, mud and water started to pile up and this, this whole package of sediment behind Glen Canyon Dam, to my mind, would be the Domini Formation. And the point I mean to make there is it's not just above land, it's all below water too. And it's still the same formation. You just can't treat it like an outcrop here, like we're doing like a geologist would. But we've cored it. There's other ways to study it. We've box cored it. We've, you know, done bathymetry. So we know it's there and we know a lot about it. To name a geologic formation takes a lot of time and paperwork, right? But there are many informal unit names out there used all the time. And they're descriptive and they're useful and sometimes they're common parlance and they're not supposed to be named after people, they're supposed to be named after places. Here, this is an opportunity. We know that in March of 1963, the dam was closed. In December of 1963, they began recording lake level. So we have a continuous record of lake level since then. So what happens here in the Domini Formation and the, the layers of sand and mud uh, are related to dam operations. I think it's, it's such a massive sediment, 2.261 cubic kilometers of sediment that is worthy of a formation name or being considered in that way. I mean, I think, you know, on the first fall science trip, we kind of campfire brainstorm came up with a Domini formation and it's generally moved into parlance since then and so it's widely used. In that respect, it, it makes sense to use it because people understand what you're saying. So Domini formation implies reservoir sediment and reservoir sediment implies, you know, that this was impounded behind some man-made kind of structure because we know the dam went up and we know all the sediments here because of it. So there's no question about its origin or its genesis. Is there also in the Domini name a kind of smack on Floyd Domini? Well, no. I mean, yes, but no, right? I mean, at the time at the campfire, it was like a lot of hooting and hollering, like, that's amazing, right? Which is why it was launched into parlance, because it was a good, appropriate name. With all, And the humor, the irony, or the whatever comes from the little dig. But to my mind, it's in parlance. It's descriptive. There are lots of scholarly reasons to say this. Not only do people say it, not only has it been, you know, written in, you know, multiple sort of, long-form, decent, high-quality journalistic pieces on this, and everyone calls it that on the trip, like everyone knows what it is. This is the guy. Why would we shield that from the conversation? He was such a giant personality, and there are lots to, to be made from that. And I think it's really neat context, and you just tag it there, and it, it remains part of the conversation. But I think the difference there is that has nothing to do with the Bureau of Reclamation, and especially not the Bureau of Reclamation today. And there's no dig at them. It's very much about kind of just helping elevate the story of this place to more people. And the Bureau of Reclamation is a huge part of that, but it has no connotations about 
them or or the challenges we're facing now or their you know willingness or or any potential issue with the Bureau of Reclamation. You know, it's mostly a, a historical piece. Hey folks, as you know, we have advertisers and sponsors that support this podcast. Today's sponsored organization is River's Edge West. You can find a direct web link in the episode notes. They are doing the work that helps to prevent river damage and also the really important work of repairing damaged river sections where they can. Are you looking for a gift to give someone? It's that time of year. Giving a tax-deductible donation to River's Edge West is easy, and it supports river health, and it supports your relationship with your friends and family. Here is Kristen from River's Edge West to tell you some more. Hi, my name is Kristen Jesperson. I'm the development director for an organization called River's Edge West, which is a nonprofit based in Grand Junction, Colorado, where the Gunnison and Colorado Rivers meet. The mission of River's Edge West is advancing the restoration of riparian lands, also known as riverside lands, in the southwestern United States through education, collaboration, and technical assistance. Or to put it differently, we work to keep the lands adjacent to rivers healthy by collaborating with the many people who manage these critical habitats. Western rivers and riparian lands provide essential ecosystem services thanks to their role in maintaining water quality and quantity, plant biodiversity, and managing the impacts of climate change. Many of the Western rivers and associated riparian lands have been severely degraded over the past 150 years by water supply development, road building, and the introduction of invasive plant species, primarily tamarisk and Russian olive. Rivers don't adhere to human-drawn boundaries. Rather, they flow and meander across states, counties, cities, and private lands. Rivers Edge West serves as an ambassador for rivers. We bring all those managing riverside lands, such as private landowners, local, state, federal agencies, and nonprofits, to the same table to help them communicate, collaborate, and better restore and protect these areas together. You can learn more about our work at www.riversedgewest.org. That is www.riversedgewest.org. Thanks. Once this strip was in the Recovering River Corridor, where the Domini layer is exposed out of the water, the various crews of scientists got to work. It was fascinating to watch. They are professors from universities, researchers from three different regional offices of the United States Geological Survey, and fish biologists with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They had various boxes and crates and bags packing all kinds of meters and gauges and electronics and tripods, Zodiacs and John boats with motors to get them up and down the river to the various places they wanted to study, laptops and tablets and batteries and this and that. One day on the river, we had our riverboats strapped together as a package, motoring down the river, going from one research canyon to another. I sat down with two of the scientists who are professors and colleagues. My name's Brenda Bowen, and I'm a geology professor at the University of Utah, and I also am the director of the Global Change and Sustainability Center at the University. And I'm Carrie Johnson, and I'm also a geology professor at the University of Utah. So I assume you each have your doctorates. What's your doctorate? PhD in geology. And yours? Same. You know, yesterday you had your machine out. Let's just start off there. Tell okay. us about the tell us about the machine. <laughs> the machine. So I brought a portable XRF X-ray fluorescence instrument that can measure elemental concentrations of whatever substance you're 
interested in characterizing and pretty cool that you know they advanced the technology to do things like send them to Mars and so we can bring them down the river too. Tell me what you are looking for inside of this Domini formation. So with that instrument in particular, we're looking at whether there are unique chemical signatures to the different types of sediments that are deposited in what we call the Domini formation. And so some of the sediments in that pile are river deposits and some are Lake Powell Reservoir or lake deposits. Um, some side canyon deposits, and you know, Carrie's been working on the, the sedimentology or sort of physical characteristics of what those sediments are. And so by bringing this, we're adding now the geochemical characteristics of those, those different beds and trying to just get a handle on what is in the Domini Formation, what's the story that it tells. You know, as geologists, we know every rock and sediment has a cool story to tell, so we're just trying to piece together what's, what's the story in this in this pile of sediment. What, what are the things that are present and what strikes you, what surprises you in their presence? You know, one thing about collecting this kind of data in the field is you get a quick glance at it to make sure you're getting reasonable numbers, but really it's not till I get back to the lab and get it all in a spreadsheet and plot things up and look at, you know, we're taking notes with every measurement of what kind of rock was that measurement on and I've made you know, yesterday I think I measured close to 100 different samples, and so I can't give you the clear answer of what we're finding. I mean, one interesting thing we saw that we didn't really expect with the data was phosphorus, and I'm interested, I need to get back and, and see how robust that measurement is, but I know there's a lot of interest in how phosphates are cycling down the river and there's been some work on sort of nutrient loading related to that going down the river so and we see it only in certain parts of the the section and not others so there might be something interesting there about when it's inundated with with water and when you're getting those different signals what's the source of the phosphates a, a speculative source i don't want to speculate on that i don't know <laughs> but it's not a common clay it's not a common clay it's like I mean, vegetation it's, it's related to or, yeah or vegetation and it's related to you know microbial processes and it's related to you know some of the stuff around the soil biogeochemistry um, in urban environments you might say it's related to things like fertilizer runoff and stuff like that but i don't i don't know that that's really what we would think here mm -hmm. so tell, tell me carrie about the work that you're doing what are you looking for yeah so I'm primarily interested in the stratigraphy of the Domini Formation. So anything reservoir associated, I want to know what is the sedimentary record. So like we forward millions of years, if some of this becomes rock and becomes part of our archive of geology, of what happened at a certain time in a certain place. I want to be able to sort of reconstruct these layers into what the river slash lake system looked like at different time intervals. But then we look within that at the features that you can see, which is everything from root marks or evidence of plant growth to preserved ripples to preserved dunes in some cases. And if you do have those kinds of features, those sedimentary structures, then you can tell which way the water was flowing at that time, which turned out to be really interesting at Waterhole Canyon because a lot of it was going away from the Colorado River straight up into that little side canyon. So 
I'm basically marching through, reading little snapshots of this landscape from, in theory, 1960 on, right, to the, the high point in the 80s. But in reality, now that we've thought about it some more and studied it, it's really mostly the 80s that I'm looking at. Well, because time, that's, time that's when the water was up here, this far yeah. up, up river. Right. I'm hearing you say that possibly in a million years there might be a perspective on this or you're just looking ahead that far how permanent do you believe this layer is not very why it is so soft and erodible it's crumbling beneath our feet so i do not think it has high preservation potential that it's actually going to become part of the the rock record i think the reason i talk in those terms is because my training and my background is all in deep time geology. These are the first like unlithified, you know, barely sedimentary rocks <laughs> that I've, I've really studied. I study the stuff that's like the bedrock Behind all around it. it. Yeah. <laughs> the time machine that I normally jump into when I'm looking at stratigraphy is going back millions of years with huge uncertainties. And what I love about studying the Dominee formation is that it's this very well-known experiment that we've been running for a few decades like we know what discharge was like we know what lake levels were down to the month down to the day sometimes i'm never gonna get that in the rock record so i'm i always translate stuff to deep time mainly because that's like this huge advantage that we have here that i'll never have working in other areas on older rocks in theory we know exactly what happened so we should be able to nail this story <laughs> But I do not think these have high preservation potential, but they have high potential to tell us a whole lot about not only how this little system has been working, but I can translate it to everything else I do throughout geologic time. So the way you're describing it, I, I feel like you're saying that this is a massive, unintentional experiment. Yep. Yeah, there are labs in our country and around the world that spend you know millions and millions of dollars creating extremely large flume tank experiments with a controlled input. There's one at the University of Minnesota that's an entire basin that they try to recreate. And they control what comes in, sediment and water, and they control where it goes. And that's it. And here we've scaled that up to an entire real basin, probably multiple basins, and instrumented it well. So I have like a definite like morbid curiosity about <laughs> the Domini formation that I think is an unpopular <laughs> opinion, but I think it's great. <laughs> when I would see Brenda and Carrie doing their work, they were in places where they could see the Domini layers, like in the bottom of the wash and up on the side of sloughing slopes. That is how they could see the inside layered composition of the Domini. There was also focus by another researcher on what was happening on the very top of the Domini, the flat top portion where a person can walk and where plants are growing. This is Dr. Sasha Reed. My name is Sasha Reed. I am a biogeochemist. I work for the United States Geological Survey, which means I work for you and everyone else in this country. Um, I am part of the Southwest Biological Science Center and I'm based out of Moab, Utah. Why are you on this trip looking at the water and the landscape. What is your role and what are you looking for? 
One of the things that I'm really interested in general as a scientist is how can I provide actionable information that resource managers can use to make complicated decisions. And so I think my role is to try to help understand the land side of things, the terrestrial side of things. For this trip, I've really been looking at the riparian zone, those lands that are really ribboning along this river. I am very interested, though, too, in how uplands, lands that are outside of the riparian zone, are connected to the river, to the health of the river, the functioning of the river. And so I hope the piece of the puzzle that I can help add is thinking about these soils, what's their chemistry, how much carbon are they holding, how are they being stabilized by organisms and by chemistry, and how can that interact with what other people are studying and understanding to give us that bigger picture. And you're also looking at crusts. I understand that you like crusts, that you are an expert <laughs> in the world of crusts. So, so maybe even just start off by telling us what is a crust, and then what are you... What are you seeing as you wander around out here? Biological soil crusts are a community of photosynthetic organisms that live on the surface of soils that can see the sun. So in places like deserts where you don't have plant canopies connecting, you have soil that has access to the sun and there you have biocrusts. These biocrusts are lichens and mosses and cyanobacteria and they can make up large swaths of area here. We are learning that they're so important in stabilizing soils that they have huge effects on the hydrology in such dry places where water goes is really important to all living things. We know that they can add fertility to the soil and that they have complicated interactions with each other and with plants and with the atmosphere that we're really only starting to understand. So these are very cool, ancient organisms that are performing high-level function on these ecosystems. One of the things that I was really excited for this trip is to see, do we see crusts growing on the exposed sediment, on the Domini formation? And so I was pleased, I guess delighted really, to see beautiful biocrusts on the Domini formation and to, to see the communities with lots of species that I recognize, that I see lots of places, mosses and lichens that are fixing nitrogen and definitely stabilizing the soils. And so that's kind of interesting in the context of the Domini formation. If it stays exposed, what will happen to that soil? Will it enter the river? At what pace? Will it blow away as dust? How? Where will it go? And biocrusts will play a role in helping to dictate the fate of that soil because they're really trying to hold it together because they want to live on top of it. And so it could affect the way that those soils erode and thus the consequences of that soil moving from where it is now to somewhere else. In another conversation, we talked about uh, another conversation today with two of the other scientists here. We talked about how this is an unintentional lab what can be captured? What do you see as capturable from this lab to help all of us to, to play the game of climate change? How does this become an information source that we can feed to other, to other communities on this planet? I think that this is a natural laboratory in a couple of ways. 
it forces us to think about novel ecosystems, to think about ecosystems that in at least the history of our understanding haven't existed before. How do those ecosystems function? What are they doing that is similar or different from our traditional understanding of ecosystems? And so this is an excellent laboratory to be able to ask questions about these kinds of systems where soils were developed in anoxic conditions or in anoxic oxic fluctuating conditions through time as a lake was created then because of drought that lake was removed for a period of time those soils were born to the atmosphere and now are being processed in ways that are really different probably from what we might expect from a soil that was born from a lava flow or from a receding glacier and so understanding how these processes are the same or not the same this system offers us an end member to ask questions about how the world works and end members are really powerful and can be hard to come by in science and so what we learn here will tell us fundamental things about biota and how they respond to certain environmental conditions what we find here will be relevant to other places that have similar types of exposure of soils soils that have unknown organisms and that could be processing things in cool different weird kinds of ways and so understanding those systems will provide information to other groups who maybe don't have the exact same situation but are also struggling with a novel ecosystem. What is an end member? A lot of how we like to ask questions in science is to look across gradients. So for example, a rainfall gradient. You go to a wet place, a kind of wet place, a kind of dry place, a super dry place, and you look at how things are the same or different in order to understand how those places function. What role does rainfall play in determining what kinds of plants are there, what kinds of microbes are there, how much carbon is stored in that soil, how the processing of nutrients occurs. The gradient offers you a lot of power to ask questions about how things work because you're not just saying, oh, that's different and this is the same. You're saying, okay, with a little bit more water, I see this. And then the same when I add a little bit more and now more, I really think that I understand what drives this ecosystem. It's the why of the question. And an end member can push you past that normal point along the gradient. It can be a place that's really different than the other places that you've been looking at. And so you can test your hypotheses there to see, does it hold even when stuff gets crazy? Do I still see the same controls? Do I see the same kinds of organisms or not? The end member offers you a really cool way to try to ask questions about how the system works in the context of other kinds of ecosystems so you can try to see that bigger picture. Here again is Rivers Edge West, our sponsored organization today. You can find a quick web link in the episode notes. They are one of the great organizations working to maintain the riparian and hyperreic zones of rivers. Kristen will tell you here more about why she wants to work for clean and stable rivers. This is Kristen from Rivers Edge West again. Rivers aren't only a big part of my professional life. They're also important to me on a personal level. They're a place of beauty and reflection, escape, excitement, fun, and connection with my family and friends. 
As we enter an era where the health of rivers is degrading and the availability of water is more and more scarce, I feel even more impassioned to bring people together to protect these resources and their health, not only for myself, but for my daughter and future generations. If you care about rivers too, I invite you to support Rivers Edge West by learning more, making a contribution, and finding out about how you can get involved. To do so, go to our website at www.riversedgewest.org. That is www.riversedgewest.org. When you donate to Rivers Edge West, you are strengthening the health of rivers and as a result, the quality of life for us all. Thank you. This Domini layer, it's a weird layer to interact with, to walk on. It is very fine sediment. Sometimes it is solid, and many times it is gently collapsing. As we would float down the river, it was common to see smaller chunks calve off into the river. My conversation with Dr. Brenda Bowen and Dr. Carrie Johnson moved into the overall stability of the Domini and what may come of this layer in the years to come. I hear you both saying that this is not a permanent situation, and yet as we motor float past this it feels permanent just just in the time frame of our own little watches and our calendars but in the big scope what are your thoughts on what happens to this like how how impermanent what's the kind of a time frame what will it take to remove and disperse this this dominant layer when we saw in gypsum canyon last night you know just they're describing more than 15, close to 20 feet of erosion of these ledges, of, of horizontal failure of this thing that had been washed out with the monsoons this summer. And what we were hiking across this morning, huge crevasses, and you know you can just see it crumbling away. You know, everyone who comes out here often is actively watching it. So, I mean, I think the question is, does water stay low or does water come back high? And that really change the trajectory of how long it might take. In the reservoir. Yeah, because we don't know what's below us. Yeah. Domini stuff underneath us here. Decades from now, I would expect that you'd come up and you'd still like spot scraps here yeah. and there, and maybe even like fairly big sections. A lot of it has already been evacuated. Obviously, it's all sitting in Lake Powell, so. But where it goes from there, I think is super interesting. How to manage that reservoir silt downstream if, if they're not going to continue with the dam, so I don't know. What are your thoughts on that management? If Pal drops, what are your thoughts on how that is managed? I certainly hope people are thinking about the volume of fine silt sediment that's going to be mobilized very quickly when they pull the plug. I'm particularly worried about that <laughs> now that I've seen how thick it is in the cores that we've taken. It sounds like kind of a mess. Did you read Elizabeth Colbert's article about yeah. this? Is that the, is the New Yorker? New Yorker one, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. In, in there, she, she gets into this a little bit, and then I just listened to her book, Under White Skies, and she, she gets into this idea of that humans, modern Anglo-European humans come in with this like control measure, this, this attempt to control nature, mm -hmm. and now we're into the phase of controlling the control. As I go through here, it makes a lot of sense. And I think about your your idea that this is a lab. This is an unintentional, massive lab. What goes from here? What can be taken from here out of this lab and, and, and shifted to other places? What are some of the immediate 
messages that can be taken. And I think about things like uh, on the Mekong River, there's a lot of dams that are being built right now. The Blue Nile Dam is in process of capturing the water. What messages for immediate dams that are being built can be sent out? What messages could you even expect to send out 50 years from now to people who might consider water management? For, for me, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is time scales of change. Like how quickly me measured time scales versus vertical thicknesses versus lateral, you know, landscape change. We can measure that so well here because it's a lab, because it's been instrumented and we've recorded all of the key inputs that we need to know. And then if we go out and measure the output, which is the Domini formation in this case, we can tell you that, you know, 12 meters of sediment only took six years to deposit, right? And then a lot of those, a lot of the thickness of those sands was probably a few days. That's a really unique thing to be able to do, to actually put that tight of a time scale on it. It's, it's, um, it's very humbling. It's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. The first thing that came to mind for me was that, you know, you said water management. Water touches everything else in the ecosystem and landscape. So when if someone's a, a water manager, they're also a sediment manager, and that sediment's going to impact the vegetation and the ecosystems and the soils. It's going to affect you know the fish and the water. It's going to affect so many things, and it's all you know this this connection to the data that Carrie's talking about. I'm, I'm thinking of that connection to the people making the decisions. Like this is a system, an example, where we can very clearly link decisions made by people far outside of this, you know, environment that have consequences that have these cascading effects on the water, the sediments, the environment, everything. And so to be able to look at it, all of that complexity and sort of this case study and see those connections, I think can help people to realize that you know folks making those decisions that may seem removed from the environment you can sort of see more of those connections in a better way here so I'd like to continue the morbid <laughs> the morbid <laughs> fascination with this, with well, yeah it's a bit of autopsy work it is that we're doing right we've got the body of sediment left over mm -hmm. and we're slicing into it and we're pulling it apart and looking at it and looking at what happened. Do you think we have yet found our best methods for extracting water from rivers for human use? Oh. That's a lot of head shaking. I, th I tend to think not. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to imagine that this is the most efficient way <laughs> to do things. When I teach energy geoscience stuff, there's this common thread of like the earth places natural limits on whatever resource it is that we're trying to use water, hydrocarbons, minerals, whatever. There's a natural limit on it somehow. It could be a limit in volume or depth or how hard you have to work to get to that resource or how quickly it would be gone. Um, so there are these, these natural limits and understanding those boundary conditions at different scales is really important. But it also, in every instance of earth resource use, there's always been these unintended consequences. 
so we can just assume that that will be the case moving forward, that there's so much that we don't know, but we know something is probably not perfectly planned here. So some humility in terms of decision making, I think would be valuable. So it seems like we're, um, we're approaching we're pulling, Clearwater. Yeah, we're pulling into Clearwater Canyon. Last question then, young high school kids, young undergrads that want to come take your classes, are you, where can they come find you? Find us at the University of Utah. Geology. Geology and Geophysics find us Department. Outside, find us inside, find us doing stuff. Yeah, sometimes cool on the stuff. river, sometimes yeah. in the lab on our computers, but there's opportunities for, you know, those who want to get involved in the field like we are now, but also, you know, in the lab or with computational stuff. There's so many different ways folks can, can be involved. The doors are wide open. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you, yeah. both Thank of you. you. Appreciate it. At the very beginning of the episode, we heard from Dr. Jack Schmidt. His Ph.D. is in geography focused on geomorphology. This is a person who began research on the Colorado River in 1984, has been in the meeting rooms with David Brower and Martin Litton, helped to develop the Grand Canyon Protection Act, was involved in establishing the controlled floods in the Grand Canyon, worked with presidential administrations, and was involved with the 2014 Pulse Flow. It goes on and on. Here is Jack with more. I'm a professor at Utah State University. I created an entity called the Center for Colorado River Studies, and I lead that. And I conceived of a project called the Future of the Colorado River and got funding and built a research team. Because of Jack's depth of research and experience, a person could talk with Jack about any river topic at considerable depth and breadth. And it was obvious that he held tremendous respect for his research colleagues on this trip working in the field. Here, I will share one question and answer with Jack. This year, kind of throughout the year, there's been a lot of media about Lake Powell, Lake Mead, the Colorado River. You know, I've done shows on it. The big media networks, the local networks have done media on the significant reduction in in the lake levels in Mead and and, uh, Powell. And I think a lot of that media is this perception of, oh, the lake is going away. I'm curious about your thoughts on what is happening. Is it a lake that's being lost? Is it a river that's returning? Is it something else, a, a mix of all that? Well, from my perspective, I think the answer is that it's both. This is a reservoir in crisis. This is a river restoring itself. And it is both of those things at the same time. But even two years ago, maybe three years ago, the issue was only this is a reservoir in crisis. And what the Returning Rapids Project and what the Glen Canyon Institute has done have been simply to remind people that, well, like it or not, this river's also restoring itself. It's just a natural process. And if you want to only think about these canyons as a bathtub to hold water and just try to conveniently ignore the notion that there's something here of value that is now restoring itself, that's a blind eye to what's going on. And so it is both. Now, that doesn't mean that it's that the most compelling 
public policy decision is to necessarily let this whole place be restored. That would be an immensely courageous decision on the part of society to do that. And in a complicated democracy, that would be one hell of a debate. But what the Returning Rapids crew and others are doing is they are starting that debate, whether they intend it or not. They are starting us down that path by saying, there's neat stuff down here. Look at this, there's new cottonwood trees. Look at this, there's new willows. Look at this, we've got sandy beaches. And so all of the, this work now is to say, there are resources here. You know, the big decision that lies ahead is in the next wet winter, how much water should be stored uh, and refill in Lake Powell. And we all know that in this complicated society, there maybe even the majority position is going to be that it ought to all be refilled. But that refilling would come at a price. To close out this episode, I want to go back to the river guide, the people who are running rivers and paying attention to the river's language. Here again is Pete Lefebvre from the Returning Rapids Project. What do you feel about the return of a river? I feel like every cat trip I do, it's getting to like open up some presents where I come down and see what's changed, what's, what's the river done to carve it back. Because the rivers, if a reservoir goes below a certain level, rivers will restore themselves pretty quickly. And getting to watch that each trip has been, I think, one of the more exciting things about running Cataract Canyon. So I, I always feel like, what are we going to see this trip? What, what's exciting this time? What, what has the river reclaimed? How much mud has it pushed out? Is there another rock sticking out somewhere? What does that mean? Are we going to get another rapid back? With rocks coming out of the side of the mud, they start creating eddies in certain places, and then we get beaches that come back. And, Seeing native vegetation come back, all this sepala right here is native vegetation, which is really great to see that coming back too, as opposed to a bunch of ragweed and Russian thistle. Better camping. You, you do this as you know, long trips, one week, two week trips, taking people out on, on big expeditions on some of the greatest rivers. You're one of these river guides that's a career river guide. In one of my other interviews on this science trip, one of the scientists talked about how this is this enormous lab to be able to study what many labs try and emulate in their real lab, their indoor lab, but this is this lab outside. What do you think about this as a lab, as a, as a place of study? What do you think about that lab idea? I see it as a, actually a really important place to study because there's lots of rivers with dams on them and reservoirs and this can help us understand what can take place, how long it takes for a river to recover after a reservoir drops out. I think it's really great that there's people out studying things and having these aha moments and getting really excited about studying sediment layers and the Domini formation. And I think it's a, a wonderful thing to have it as a lab. We get to watch geology happening in these uh, forces the river reclaiming itself in real time, week to week, year to year. I think it's pretty neat to have 
have people out studying it, see what happens here so they can understand what happens in other places. Anything else you feel like we should talk about? Um, I think they could do a little work on the uh, takeout, <laughs> this access point here. An Elzada Clover and Lois Jotter size thank you goes out to the 28 people on this trip. They are all on my mind for this production. I mentioned mid-episode, and I'll say it again here. There are two episodes on this topic from the spring of 2021. The first gives a really clear on-river interview about the Returning Rapids projects from its beginning, and then the second is an interview with the Bureau of Reclamation Managers of Lake Powell. This is an ongoing topic and not something that will be covered in one year. And I see this as a huge marker for cultural and water shifts that are emerging in the southwest United States. Those two episodes and a few others have links in the episode notes. I have a second thank you. This thank you goes out to you. You who are listening. When I started this podcast, I knew I was pursuing my intersectional passion of rivers and audio interviews. From there, I had no idea where this would go. This episode is the 34th episode at the end of two and a half years. At this point... This podcast has been heard in all 50 states and in a total of 88 countries. I am blown away, and I am having a blast and looking forward to continuing this work. Thank you each for helping me and this podcast be real. And a third thank you. In the amazing fact that this is my exclusive work now, it is important for me to recognize all the advertisers and sponsors this year. Your trust is powerful. Thank you for working with me to create messages for your work and your products. 2022 is on the other side of the solstice. I have a nearly full menu of episodes for next year. The first episode in January will be a short one to tell you about the content and a new publishing model I will use in 2022. You can be in touch anytime on social media and email hello at theriverradius.com. Have a sweet few weeks. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. It's a beautiful little fish. It has a head that looks like somebody squished it from top to bottom with their thumb and forefinger, and then there's a prominent hump right behind the head. It's a really distinctive and unique looking animal. Do you have like a celebratory, we got one thing that happens when you <laughs> find a humpback in your net? Yeah, sometimes we'll go, jump, <laughs> jump, jump. <laughs> Although this trip, uh, Kevin McAbee requested that we do the Ric Flair woo. What, what does that sound like? You'll have to ask him. <laughs> I don't think I can do it. Kevin, can I? Can I? Can you come join me? Sure. Are you Kevin with the woo noise? <laughs> I guess. What does that sound like? <laughs> woo! That's good. <laughs> is that is that what you wanted? That's what I wanted. <laughs> is that all you wanted? Yeah, we're done. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Stay here. <laughs> Mike was like, well, we could call it Pete's Rocks. And at that point, I, I was, you know, excited about things, but I, I didn't want a, a set of rocks or anything named after me because usually when you come across a, a rock in the river that's got a name, it's named after a guide or a person that wrapped a boat there or flipped a boat there or had some sort of calamity. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't want that to move forward in that way.